Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. Today's episode is going to be a special one, as uh, I'm not exactly sure when I'm going to release it, but either uh, this is April 9th or we are approaching April 9th, uh, 2020, which is going to mark the 75th anniversary of the execution of theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, some people probably have never heard of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, but those of you who did have probably heard of him in a in a particular light. Um, so he is he is pretty well known for um, his books Life Together and Discipleship, and this idea of community. But he's also very well known as the uh, German theologian who attempted to assassinate Hitler, or was part of a plot to assassinate Hitler. And so for those who do know him, in their minds, Bonhoeffer is elevated as this example of not just some abstract theologian thinking about ideas that don't really have that much consequence in the real world, but as this theologian who was who took a legitimate actual stand against one of the most evil regimes in all of history in attempting to assassinate Hitler himself and undermine the Nazi regime. Stanley Hauerwas uh, had an introduction to a book that I just read, and in that introduction, Hauerwas uh, says that, um, you know, whenever somebody, whenever he mentions that he's a pacifist or whenever the, the topic comes up, one of the first things that almost anybody will bring up is, oh yeah, well, what about, uh, what about Dietrich Bonhoeffer? What do you do with him if you're a pacifist? Because to non-pacifists, Bonhoeffer represents this, this hero who, who was maybe idealistic because at, at one point in Bonhoeffer's life, he very clearly espoused pacifism, very clearly. Um, and, and so to now have this pacifist turned assassin, you know, what do pacifists do with that? Because to non-pacifists, it's, it's obvious, right? Uh, Bonhoeffer was an idealist, and he figured out that under the Nazi regime, idealism didn't work, and uh, he needed to, to wake up to reality, and he needed to renounce this idealism that pacifism brings with it. And for me, you know, I did have to deal with, with this idea of Bonhoeffer early on as I was, you know, quite honestly... Um, Bonhoeffer wasn't really a big hurdle for me in my mind uh, in, in terms of addressing pacifism. That was, that was if it was even on my radar at all, that was at the very bottom of reasons why I would not accept pacifism. You know, the, the Bible, uh, the Old Testament, um, the morality of, of absence, like if you fail to help your neighbor, like those were the things that seemed like big deals. But Bonhoeffer's actions and his wavering and pacifism didn't seem like a big deal to me at all. You know, if you're if you're making a logical case, somebody's wavering in their actions should be irrelevant. Um, I, I mean, it would be kind of like saying uh, if somebody looking at the outside of Christianity said, "Well, you know, monogamy is proven false because there are a lot of Christian leaders and." people who claim to be strong Christians who have had affairs or who get divorced and remarried uh, and not living in monogamy like like Christ in the Bible uh, says you should. So therefore, monogamy is proven false because of the 
inappropriate actions of people or hypocrisy or whatever you want to call it, failure, uh, sin, perhaps, uh, human condition. So for me, who cares if Bonhoeffer failed to live perfectly? I mean, that, that seems largely irrelevant to the case against pacifism. You know, and if anything, when you look at Bonhoeffer's life, you could kind of say the opposite. You could say, well, the fact that it took a man like Hitler five plus years, uh, close to a decade, depending on on where you see Bonhoeffer um, starting to espouse pacifism and where he, uh, where you see him as attempting to plot Hitler's assassination, it could be closer to a decade. So it took Hitler at least five years to get a, a man like Bonhoeffer to deviate from his conviction. Um, that that says a lot to me. You know that uh, that Bonhoeffer could have held on to uh, the idea of pacifism for so long under a person like Hitler. So I mean, th- there are so many ways that you can spin this idea of Bonhoeffer, and regardless of of how you spin it in terms of of him being an assassin or plotting. It just doesn't seem to matter to me. That being said, as as Harawas points out, it does matter to a lot of people. You know, if pacifism is true, then Bonhoeffer's actions are are a stumbling block. Um, if the narrative holds true, they are a stumbling block to some people, either because um, those people don't understand how humans fail at any uh, ideal or or um, commands that have been given by God, uh, and so they're, they're unwilling to be consistent in their application of um, Bonhoeffer versus you know their pastor who had an affair uh, and monogamy, or subconsciously or consciously, people just want an excuse to kind of sweep pacifism away on, on one story without giving it a, a good hearing and, and looking at the cumulative case. So what I want to do, and and I think this is going to be at least two episodes, um, what I want to do is I want to go through a a recent book that I just read uh, called Bonhoeffer the Assassin, which takes a look at the assumptions that, that people have, this narrative that Bonhoeffer was an assassin or was willing to kill Hitler or tried to help kill Hitler. It's going to look at the evidence. And uh, I want to go through this because if it is a stumbling block for people, I think it would be great to be able to, to remove that if if possible. Um, and and I think also after having read the book, it um, even though Bonhoeffer's failure wasn't something that uh, negated pacifism, and his his consistency is also something that doesn't prove pacifism. If you if you recognize that Bonhoeffer's life is significantly different and he did hold the moral ideal of pacifism through his life, even under the Nazi regime and in the face of his execution, then that's, um, while not proof for pacifism, it's certainly something that can encourage us as we attempt to hold strong uh, in, in our convictions. Whether that conviction is pacifism or or something else. It's uh, Bonhoeffer is a part of the cloud of witnesses. The other reason I want to take a look at Bonhoeffer is because we are concluding our series on consequentialism. And I think the story of Bonhoeffer and the, na- the narrative that surrounds him and the confusion and, and everything, I think it's it 
just fits this idea of consequentialism and, and um, how people try to be consequentialists. It, it fits it so well, and I think it is a, a great uh, cap to, to the series that we're doing. And because consequentialists love the story of Bonhoeffer as they believe it to be. And that they see pacifism as something that's idealistic and ineffective in the real world. But, you know, when real trials come, um, Bonhoeffer's story shows pacifists how the real world works and how real Christians uh, and smart theologians uh, in the face of reality deviate and change from pacifism because they recognize what they need to do. So in this first episode, what I am going to do is I want to show a holistic case for why the authors of, uh, of Bonhoeffer the Assassin don't believe that Bonhoeffer embraced violence and was a part of the plot to kill Hitler. And they are going to make a cumulative case, which, you know, I'm not 100% on board with them um, in terms of, well, I don't think there's 100% certainty that Bonhoeffer did not embrace violence. But I think the authors show with a very high degree of certainty that he didn't. And I want to present that case to you as is laid out in the book. In the second episode, I want to use some of the quotes um, from Bonhoeffer and the authors. Uh, I want to use quotes from Bonhoeffer's life and teachings to reflect once again on consequentialism, and specifically as seen in Bonhoeffer's life as he fought against one of the most terrible regimes um, in modern human history. So let's jump right into the the holistic case, the cumulative case for why Bonhoeffer did not throw off his pacifism and embrace violence. And the authors have two uh, two types of evidence, which I'm going to label external evidence and internal evidence. The external evidence is going to be like the historical facts um, and, and things that are uh, that we can kind of glean from uh, actions. Whereas the internal evidence is going to be more from Bonhoeffer's own writings and his his own thoughts and the things that he he puts down on paper and uh, that's more internal to him as opposed to external goings on. So we'll begin with the with the external evidence, which is which is much more clear than the uh, than the internal uh, in terms of you know objectivity, but um, which might actually be somewhat less weighty in some regards because it doesn't show you what's going on in Bonhoeffer's head. But we'll start with the the external evidence and and kind of move into the internal later. So it seems that Bonhoeffer had a a very clear ideological transformation, a paradigm shift in his thinking between 1929 and 1931. Because in 1929, Bonhoeffer gave a lecture in Barcelona which uh, dealt with a bunch of moral conundrums of sorts, which should remind you a lot of uh, of our consequentialism series. But one of those conundrums was how do you how do you deal with um, with killing another human being, with murder for the state, and specifically, you know, w- whether it's an intruder or murdering for the state like your army. And Bonhoeffer said, uh, "Murder is justified for your your people. Like you do it for your state, and that's what you need to do." But what we see over the over the course of the next few years, and and the authors go into historical detail about, you know, Bonhoeffer and where he traveled and his time in in the United States and at university and with other individuals that uh, with whom he came in contact, 
Um, some of the individuals, or one of the individuals, I believe, Lasser, I don't remember his name exactly, uh, which if you listen to the, the podcast City of Refuge, I'm pretty sure that that individual also was influential on, um, on, on the guy in La Chambon, uh, France, who saved the 3,500 Jews and, and uh, was a pacifist. But anyway, Bonhoeffer very clearly changed his tune and by the mid-1930s is calling himself a pacifist. Like He, he explicitly uses that label. And in the, the early to mid-1930s, we see some of Bonhoeffer's actions. You know, whereas in 1929 Barcelona, he is talking about, um, you know, if the state asks you to, to go to war, you, you pretty much have to do it. Like, that's our obligation to our people. Um, but he, in the early 1930s, after this paradigm shift and transformation, he begins to very strongly push back against the Nazis. Um, he begins to support those who are oppressed, particularly the Jews, and he criticizes the nationalistic church, which, um, you know, the majority church who is going right along with Hitler, who is giving them prominence and political power. And, and by some, Bonhoeffer is even labeled as an enemy of the state. Because when you run a propaganda machine like Nazi Germany did, uh, a lot of your power comes in the deception of the masses. It comes in um, rhetorical force from from just what people believe and what you, what they can get on board with and what you can stir up. And so to have a dissenting voice is a very big deal when, when you need to control people. Uh, later, in the 1930s, Bonhoeffer actually created a community, I believe it was called Finkenwald or something, and, and if anything's German in here, I know I'm going to butcher it, so I'm sorry. But uh, he created this community where he began to disciple leaders. And here, here he explicitly taught nonviolence. And he advocated conscientious objection um, to, uh, to war if you're to get drafted. Now, that was a, that was a really big deal because he was essentially telling his students, when war comes around, you should be a conscientious objector. And the reason that's a big deal is because... Uh, you didn't just like get socially ostracized for being a conscientious objector. You were executed back then for um, refusing to fight. So this was a, a very, very serious deal. Um, and, and out of this uh, community of, of uh, upcoming pastors and, and Christian leaders, Bonhoeffer wrote his book, Life Together. Uh, sometime in the, I believe it was like right around 1940 or 41, Bonhoeffer actually joined the German intelligence agency through the contacts that he had. He had some family members and close friends who were, were working in, uh, in, in the intelligence community. I believe it's called the Abwehr. And Bonhoeffer seemed to have done this. Uh, I don't I don't recall that there's anything that explicitly says that he did, but he seems to have done this because he by joining the German intelligence agency and using his connections to get in there, um he was able to avoid conscription because he was working for the the German government of sorts. Um and so some people say the the non-pacifists are going to say, "Yep, see he joined the German intelligence so that he could get close to Hitler to assassinate him." Like that's his intent in joining the Abwehr. But if you look at his life up to this point, there's no wavering from nonviolence, and um, Bonhoeffer 
had just told his his community like we need to be conscientious objectors and so um you know he he does something that allows him to not fight uh so he he's able to use his, to get a position so that he doesn't have to fight sort of like i guess Des, desmond Doss and um you know who he does join the military but he does it to be a medic who refuses to carry a gun or shoot anybody so it's kind of you know, you're you're joining a position um but also avoiding the thing that you think's wrong about that position so i don't think bonhoeffer was technically in the army he's in german intelligence and while he's in in the the german intelligence we see some of the ways that he he uses that in intelligence he helped a number of jews flee the country uh, I don't remember exactly how he did it. He was able to like shift finances and stuff and, and warn people. And um, he was able to, to use his connections, which he, he did have a lot of connections abroad. He was uh, very good friends with Karl Barth. He had been in England for a time. He had been in the United States for a time. So he did have a lot of connections overseas. And he was able to um, use his, his intelligence and his connections to help some, some Jews flee. Germany. Now, at one point, Bonhoeffer was convicted. Uh, the, the Germans caught him, and they actually caught him. Um, they indicted him, I believe it was shortly after one of the assassination attempts on Hitler. Um, because when there's an assassination attempt, you don't just get the would-be assassin, but you know that that assassin has to have help. And so what you do is you start to look through all of the, the records, the financial records, um, everything, and you're looking for anybody who's even loosely connected, and you're going to get rid of them. Well, upon inspection of, of uh, the Abwehr, the German intelligence, they found that Bonhoeffer had manipulated resources to help this Jewish group. And so his, his indictment, when they say, you know, Bonhoeffer, you're, you're uh, going to prison, or you're going to a court case, they explicitly said that um, the reason he's going is because, number one, he avoided military service, and number two, he helped others to, to avoid Germany as well. And so essentially what, what happened is they see that, okay, you joined the German intelligence, so uh, but it wasn't to actually um, be intelligence and to help Germany, you did it so that you could use your position to help uh, others, to help Jews in particular here in, in Bonhoeffer's case. And that's what he's explicitly charged with. You know, and if, if you believe those documents, you know, the irony of all of this, the irony of the, the current narrative versus what these authors argue that the narrative should be, the irony is that Bonhoeffer ended up being charged and executed for his moral consistency um, yet he's being praised for the opposite because what Bonhoeffer, according to these authors, did was he got in a position that allowed him to avoid fighting in the military and he used his position to subvert the government by helping the oppressed in a nonviolent manner. Um, that's what he was charged with and that's what he was killed for, uh, according to documents. Now we can we can go even further because some people might say that okay well yeah of course Bonhoeffer's a good guy he helped people escape but that doesn't mean he didn't also use his position in an attempt to assassinate Hitler and to to verify or falsify this then we have to look at okay well what 
what um, possibilities did Bonhoeffer have to assassinate uh, Hitler? How could he have been connected? And the authors point out that um, of the 42 known attempts to assassinate Hitler, there are only five that are reasonable to connect Bonhoeffer to. And when you look at those, you have two which occurred before Bonhoeffer joined the German intelligence, although um, you know, with some of Bonhoeffer's connections in the intelligence agency, it's not out of the question that he could have been talking to some of those individuals. Um, but there's just no evidence that, that that was the case. There were two assassination attempts which occurred during Bonhoeffer's time uh, in the German intelligence agency, but those two weren't ever discovered, so nobody was um, nobody was caught doing that. So it seems kind of crazy to think that Bonhoeffer would be executed for trying to assassinate Hitler when nobody knew that those attempts had even occurred. And so one of the attempts is there's a, a package of, of wine bottles that somebody replaced with explosives, and those were put on uh, a plane that Hitler was flying on, but for whatever reason, the explosives didn't go off. Um, and uh, w when they landed, the guy who had planted him was like, ah, oh, crap. And so he, he replaced the wine bottles back and took the explosives before anybody could notice. So nobody found out uh, about it until after the war or whatever. Um, one of the other attempts was somebody who basically had a suicide bomb, and he lit a 10-minute fuse, and he was going to give Hitler a tour through the, uh, I don't know if it was a mine or whatever he was giving him a tour of. And uh, two minutes into the tour, Hitler kind of got distracted and stuff and had to leave really quickly. So the guy quickly went into the bathroom and, and defused the bomb before it blew up. And so nobody ever found out about that. The only other attempt at assassination which Bonhoeffer could potentially be linked to was, uh, if you've ever seen the movie Valkyrie, it, uh, it was that assassination attempt. Um, I believe it was a, a, bomb, a briefcase bomb or something and um, at, at some big meeting, but the, the table was uh, ended up blocking it or something. Uh, so, but that one, even though the planning may have started during Bonhoeffer's time in the German intelligence, Bonhoeffer was convicted and sent to prison like, I think it was in... It was in 1944, but like in the winter slash spring, um, and the Valkyrie guy, the, the main guy, only came on board and only planned this out like in August or something. So there may have been some plans that were going on while Bonhoeffer, before Bonhoeffer went to prison, but uh, this thing seemed to have largely transpired after Bonhoeffer. And so Bonhoeffer would not be in prison for this assassination attempt because the assassination attempt developed after he was imprisoned. Now that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that Bonhoeffer wasn't imprisoned and then executed later for trying to um, you know that that more information didn't come forward and, and he wasn't involved in, a, in that assassination attempt or any others. But the point of all of this is that Bonhoeffer has a very loose connection, if any connection at all, to uh, the early two that happened before him, um, 
or to the one that happened after him. And even the ones that happened during his time in the Abwehr, like it, they weren't even found out. So Bonhoeffer, it seems like his execution happened for the very reason that he was convicted for, that the, that the German documents say, which is that he avoided conscription and he helped some of the Jews escape. I mean, that if you're just going to take things at face value and without any other evidence other than the fact that some of these assassination attempts occurred out of the office of like 6,000 workers, uh, 50 or so of whom were um, believed to, to have been um, spies of sorts, you know, th- there's just no evidence that Bonhoeffer was a part of the assassination plot. Um, you can say that it was possible, sure, but there's no evidence that would make you think that he was. So what can we say about Bonhoeffer for sure? For sure, Bonhoeffer subverted the government. He helped Jews escape, and he avoided governmental service. He had relationships with some of the people that we know were conspirators for Hitler's assassination. And that's one of the reasons why individuals want to jump on board with this idea that Bonhoeffer also was was helping them figure out how to kill Hitler. That being said, we do not have any evidence of Bonhoeffer condoning, planning, or participating in violence. Now we could say, I mean one thing we could say is, well, Bonhoeffer might have, maybe even probably did, know about at least one of those assassination attempts because because the individuals that uh, plotted it were were close friends or or family or working in the same office, and they knew Bonhoeffer didn't like um, the current regime, so maybe they did give him information. And I don't know how that worked because even if you're planning things and plotting to assassinate somebody, the less people who know it, the better. And if you know Bonhoeffer is a nonviolent guy. You might not really want to divulge the secrets to him, not only for his own safety, but also because um, the more people who know, it's easier to get your plan discovered. So we just don't know what his conversations were like. Um, But the authors give us a a very interesting conversation that Bonhoeffer had with one of his former students that I think can give us some insight into what a conversation might have been like um, and how we could say... Bonhoeffer may have known about um, about one of the assassination plots, which we don't know if he did, but we could say that Bonhoeffer knew about it and still say he was not a part of it. So Bonhoeffer, right, at this, uh, at this community that he had taught in, uh, future Christian leaders, he advocated conscientious objection. And one of his students, um, many of his students got... Um, Drafted, but one of these students got drafted, ended up going to uh, to the front. But when he returned, he was able to meet with with Bonhoeffer. And I mean, Bonhoeffer knew the terrible things. He received letters from his students about how they had to execute civilians and burn down villages. And I mean, they were just like, "I, this is so hard. This is what we did today. I, I can't bear this on my moral conscience." Like Bonhoeffer's nonviolent students were either either acting uh, violently or um, at least having to experience this violence and be a part of it in, in warfare. And so Bonhoeffer knew how terrible things were on the front. 
Uh, and when this student came back, he, he wrote about his experience with Bonhoeffer, and he said, he said it was so painful, and I was so shamed to speak with, with Bonhoeffer because I knew what he believed, and I knew what he taught, and I knew that I was failing. But when he, when he talks about his experience with Bonhoeffer, he says, despite my shame and my sin and, and, and this, this evil, he said, Bonhoeffer was extremely gracious to me. He didn't contem- condemn me. He asked about you know how I was and how I was getting along, and, and he conversed with him. He met this soldier where he was at, and rather than um, condemning and judging him, he, he showed him grace and love and met him where he was. Now let's say that Bonhoeffer was having conversations with people about assassinating Hitler. Let's say they, they talked to him about it. Just because he knew people who attempted to assassinate Hitler, and even if they had conversations about killing Hitler, I can imagine that it would be just like it was with this student who returned from the front, where Bonhoeffer was meeting people where they were at, and he recognized that there were he recognized the evil of Nazi Germany and Hitler. He recognized that there were Christians who uh, disagreed with him. He recognized that some people thought this was what they had to do. Um, and he recognized that you live by the sword, sword and die by the sword and that um, you know Hitler was, was bringing upon judgment from him from other nations and even people who um, diverged within Bonhoeffer's own nation. And I can imagine that Bonhoeffer in those conversations, uh, like with his student, didn't try to judge or condemn or um, or change their course. Maybe he did, um, but I, I don't see that that means that he was wavering from his convictions. Um, it's possible that he did, but there is, once again, there is absolutely no evidence that Bonhoeffer according to these authors, that Bonhoeffer um, was, was a part of a conspiracy or that he approved of violence towards Hitler. Now, of course, you could say, well, Bonhoeffer's silence, if Bonhoeffer did know about it, which we don't know that he did, but if he did know about it and he was silent about it and didn't warn Hitler, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's basically complicity in the violence. And sure, you could say that. Um, and... and um, you know, maybe Bonhoeffer is guilty in that regard. Uh, I don't know. Certainly, I would think that that falls into more of the the gray and such. But once again, this is a hypothetical. We have no evidence that, that this is what occurred. So that's the external historical evidence. Let's take a look at the internal evidence, the evidence from Bonhoeffer's writings and um, and what was going on inside of him from what best we can tell. And the majority of, of uh, Bonhoeffer the Assassin, the book, is actually dedicated to this aspect of the evidence. It gets, it gets very deep, and um, I'm just going to scratch the surface here. So Bonhoeffer considered that he had a true conversion when he fully saw and embraced Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. When he stopped turning things into metaphors and these these um, things that were separate from Christ. When he saw Christ after sometime after 1929, um, you know Bonhoeffer says, "I was converted." 
right? My conversion happened. And it's kind of weird to think that he was a pastor and preaching and all this stuff, but he doesn't feel like he was converted until um, like the early 1930s. And I can somewhat relate to that. I mean, it, it, it wasn't until five or so years ago um, that my life really, really changed. And I I could maybe describe that and talk about it in um, in some other episode. But yeah, I mean, I grew up in a Christian school. I was saturated with Christianity. I went to a Christian college. I got a Bible minor. I taught at a missionary school. Like all those things. But it wasn't until Jesus became fully real to me, became profound, became countercultural, became... Um, became the radical person that he was, somebody that only God could be. You know, until he became like that to me, it Jesus wasn't life-changing. Jesus was accommodating and he was a nice uh, accentuation to my life, a nice nice uh um person to put up on the shelf and and pull down when I needed him and to use to justify things or or feel good about myself, whatever. And so I I really understand Bonhoeffer's transition here but he says that's when he feels like he was fully truly converted and after he converted he explicitly labeled himself as a pacifist as a pacifist and he taught against joining the army he advocated loving enemies subverting uh, german injustices he railed against the church's nationalism and he himself avoided military service and telling others to do the same now, in 1944, I believe this is after he's been arrested. He was charged in, like, September or something, 1943. He was imprisoned in, in early 1944. Um, and by his own admission in 1944, he had held a consistent trajectory since his conversion. He says that. He says that I have not wavered. I've held consistently to the course that I, I, uh, I've been on since my conversion. And if you look at that course... That course, one of the the main components, the pieces of that backbone was um, teaching of nonviolence and enemy love. And it seems weird that after Bonhoeffer is charged and in prison, he's going to uh, say that he held a consistent trajectory if he had such a paradigm shift back to a willingness to do violence. It just doesn't fit with with all that he's taught so far. Um, to say that he's been consistent if he's thrown off such a big component of, of what he's advocated. Nevertheless, some, some people try to use his works to disprove Bonhoeffer's own life and, and uh, teachings. And so what they say is, they say, look, Bonhoeffer, he went through this uh, immature period of um, naivete or idealism. So apparently he he was mature in 1929 when he told people that they could murder for their government. But then he reverted to immaturity in his idealism. But then he matured again when he decided to to throw off pacifism and, and deal with the real world. And so what people will do is they will focus on Bonhoeffer's disdain for absolutism as indicative of his acceptance of realism. And people like uh, Niebuhr... Um, and so what uh, what that means in, in uh, normal terms is that Bonhoeffer really doesn't like these hard and fast rules. He doesn't like um, lists of commandments. He, he views those things as legalistic and pharisaical. 
um, particularly in his later work on ethics, um, which was a manuscript and it was never finished. And so this is him writing right before prison when he's supposedly um, figuring out how to assassinate Hitler and even a little bit during prison. And so people say, look, he, he really hates these absolutes. So that means he must have thrown off pacifism because pacifism is an absolute. But what people fail to understand is that Bonhoeffer wasn't throwing off ideals like pacifism. What he was doing is he was grounding them differently. Um, he, he hated the grounding of rules in moral systems um, and ideals. He hated grounding them in moralism. He, he couldn't stand it. But if it was grounded in Christ, that's right. And so what Bonhoeffer would say is, I hate all these absolutes, like these people who say that do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. Bonhoeffer would say, be like Christ. And you know what? Christ lived nonviolently. And, and Bonhoeffer would say, don't ascribe to be nonviolent. Ascribe to be like Christ. And um, so Bonhoeffer's disdain for absolutism doesn't mean that Bonhoeffer didn't believe in, in um, absolutes because Jesus Christ absolutely is a certain way, but it really affects how you go about things uh, depending on how you ground them because somebody could be a, a completely nonviolent person and not be in Christ, and that's a problem. Somebody could be monogamous and not be in Christ and, and do it for those reasons, and that's a problem. You know, a lot of Christians recognize this when, when people say, well, I'm a good person, and, uh, or when they look at their neighbor who's an atheist and, and they say, well, he, I mean, he's, he's really good. So, so if you're next door is an atheist and, and they live a, a really good life, um, you know, it, it'll be hard to imagine that God would judge them. Um, but we say all the time that uh, if, you're, if you're doing things but you're not doing them for God, you know, mot- motivation is, is a part of the, the morality of something too. Uh, and if you're apart from God, you can't be doing it to serve him and glorify him and love him. So for Bonhoeffer, motivation was, uh, or your grounding, was a big, big part of um, morality and what you were supposed to do. See, absolute ideals produce legalism. They don't require grace to complete. But being in a relationship with Christ and being like Christ requires grace, and it produces community life, not uh, moralism, not uh, I'm better than you-ism, you know, not all of those, those things. The end goal of a morality grounded in Christ is community. The end goal of a morality grounded in, um, in ideals and lists is superiority. You know, you could be a moralist pacifist who hates enemies and condemns former students who join the army, all while not harming anybody. Or you can be a Christ follower, like Bonhoeffer, whose pacifism is not some abstract or concrete or whatever type of ideal that it is and and based on some list, but rather um, who holds that as a fruit of walking with Christ and is able to be like Christ to those that he meets who don't hold the ideals uh, as well as as he does. Because it's not about the ideals per se, it's about um, being Christ-like. So the the author spends much, 
much more time on on the case, and you should uh, you should definitely check it out. But that so far is is uh, the case for why Bonhoeffer is not an assassin. Uh, the case in a nutshell. I really enjoyed the book. I learned a lot about Bonhoeffer, about Bart, about uh, Niebuhr, about history, ethics, and and a lot more. Um, and the point is that you you can't really get Bonhoeffer the assassin from the evidence. You can get possibility that Bonhoeffer is an assassin. Sure, it's possible. But you don't really get probability or certainty at all. In fact, that probability and certainty, certainty uh, goes the other way for the case that he was not. Maybe true that he was an assassin, but very, very unlikely. This extreme certainty that so many people have, that Bonhoeffer uh, was an assassin, seems to show me more about our preconceived ideas than it does about who Bonhoeffer is. You know, we, we seek self-justification in our embracing of violence as a means. We um, want to continue to refuse to recognize nonviolent action, and we want to continue to view... Um, to view Christ's life as as largely metaphorical for for what it means for our lives. And so when somebody tells us that Bonhoeffer was an assassin, we just say, "Yep, yeah, makes sense." Don't really look at the evidence, and uh, it fits with a, with the narrative that we uh, we want and expect. I would say after reading this book that that Bonhoeffer is a hero um, in his failing to assassinate Hitler or his, his lack of attempt to assassinate Hitler violently. He's not recognized. You don't, you don't ever hear anybody really recognize him for helping out uh, Jews escape, for creating a beautiful community uh, where soldiers who didn't do what Bonhoeffer said and, and weren't conscientious, conscientious objectors felt like they could return to Bonhoeffer because he'd be gracious and loving with them because of the community that he created. And people don't recognize Bonhoeffer for being a voice in the darkness, one of the first people to loudly call out um, the evils of Hitler um, and call people to join in solidarity and in nonviolence um, and to refuse joining the German war machine. The majority of, Christ- uh, of Germany was, was Christian, and had they taken on nonviolence, Hitler would not have had the, the fodder to throw at the rest of Europe and to run the gas chambers. But because people were willing to do violence, all they had to do was be promised power and um, position and effectiveness. And Hitler was able to tweak uh, how that power was used and, and uh, how that violence was, was aimed. And Hitler's army was a Christian army that was willing to do violence for power. It's sad to me that we need Bonhoeffer to be violent for us to elevate him, um, rather than being able to recognize him for the consistent and, and courageous individual that he was. I hope you take a deeper look at Bonhoeffer after this. Take a look at the book, and um, please listen to part two, because I want to explore how Bonhoeffer specifically touches on the issue of consequentialism and some of the things that we can learn from his teachings. So that's all for now. So peace, and because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it.